1: Hey everyone, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Now, I'm trying not to be too repetitive in my intros to books on 20th century science, but I continue to be dazzled by unlikely yet auspicious meetings of great minds. So, here goes. In 1946, an unlikely grouping of natural and social scientists met in New York City to discuss shared questions in fields like neurophysiology, anthropology, and digital computing, to name a few. This was the inaugural Macy Foundation conference on Feedback Mechanisms and Circular Causal Systems in Biological and Social Systems, which was to run for the next seven years with various permutations of that title. The discussions at these conferences, attended by the likes of Norbert Wiener, Margaret Mead, John von Neumann, Gregory Bateson, and Warren McCulloch, would set the course for research on cybernetics, a new science of communication and control. I recently spoke with Ron Klein, professor of history and ethics in engineering at Cornell University, about his new book, The Cybernetics Moment, or Why We Call Our Age the Information Age, published in 2015 by Johns Hopkins University Press. Klein's book presents a highly engaging overview of of the development and fate of the deeply interdisciplinary field of cybernetics, which helped frame nascent questions about information and society in the post-war period. Klein's book charts the work of major figures in the field while paying attention to the boundary work, the establishment and challenging of boundaries between fields of inquiry, they performed. All the while, he documents the emergence of a broader cybernetic discourse through which computers became understood as electronic brains, information as a physical entity, and societies as akin to feedback mechanisms. I really enjoyed this book because Klein doesn't take the importance of cybernetic theory to be self-evident. Rather, he traces its multitude of fates and transformations. Other historical work on the subject often betrays a sense of being enamored with second-wave cybernetic theory which focuses on the relationship between the observer and the observed. Klein's cybernetics moment is not just a possible world that lapsed into failure as the threads of collaborations wore thin. Instead, he asks difficult questions about the influence of this exceptional yet bounded discourse on our present possibilities. What artifacts, material and theoretical, shaped and still influence our discussions of information and society? I recommend this book to historians of science and technology, and as an informed and highly enjoyable corrective to, well, let's just say, books on the subject of computing and information theory that sell far more copies. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Professor Ron Klein, Professor of History and Ethics in Engineering at Cornell University. Ron, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Um, so the way we like to get into uh, these interviews is by having our interviewees explain their pathway into the field and also how they came to the book at hand. So I'd love if you could do that for us.
0: Sure. I came into this book in the in the 1990s during the dot-com boom, and I was curious why, when a course I had been teaching, like on the history of electrical communications, I put information in the title, and the course, the uh, enrollment triple. Hmm. Like maybe that's ninety five or so. So I got interested in how information became this keyword, right, of the dot com uh, the dot com boom. And then I got interested in information theory. And um, I have a joint appointment at Cornell between the Science and Technology Studies Department, I'm a historian of technology, and the Engineering College because when I was hired there, they put historians of science in the in the departments of whose subject they study. So i had the information theorists down the hall too.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so I was writing about information theory and so forth, and when I would give a talk on this, I just was dead response from the audience. I mean, completely dead response. I mean, even, you know, even the information theorists they go, okay, come on, what's the point here? So but when I start talking about Norbert Wiener and cybernetics, oh my heavens, I mean, people, all kinds of questions, and, and talking about cyborgs, I gave a paper on this, where are the cyborgs and cybernetics, all kinds of questions, and Norbert Wiener's correspondence that they might is It's just amazing. The mm-hmm. breadth of the people used to think. So that's how this project grew into something kind of narrow on the history of Claude Shannon, who's kind of boring, and information theory to, to Wiener and Cybernetics, which is much more interesting combined. But I tried to keep the two together.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting convergence of yeah two main figures. So just to start us off, uh, for our listeners, it would be great if you could chart us through the um, kind of brief biographies of both uh, Norbert Wiener and Claude Shannon. And it's great too, because, you know, cybernetics does really have just this, you know, it has a starting point, right? It's fairly easy to trace with, uh, you know, Wiener's own kind of self aggrandizing and self publication. So yeah, Yeah. it's fascinating to hear more about him.
0: Yeah. And also, uh, but there's a, there's also a group in Britain called the Racial Club, and and the the requirements for membership were the people who were working on cybernetics before Wiener. So <laughs> it is a little prehistory too, but it's not as well known anyway. Yes. So these two figures in the United States are, are are quite important for both fields: cybernetics and information theory. Shannon's a math, math, mathematician at Bell Labs. He I did his work. Some of his work under on, under Norbert Wiener, who's also a mathematician at MIT. Anyway, after, during the war, Wiener did a, was working on an anti-aircraft project and uh, for for the military. And he got very interested in this relationship between humans and machines. How the machine and the human operating the machine, like, for example, tr- tracking, trying to track an aircraft, you could view that machine, that automatic machine, automatic machine that would receive inputs and outputs and act on them was very similar to how humans operated. And so he got this idea, and him and another group during the war, that they should have this uh, new field. And it really expanded when, when uh, after the war, during the, during the Macy Conferences, when Warren McCulloch was a neurophysiologist and uh, Gregory Bates, an anthropologist, had, had, these, had these meetings. For Wiener, it was very much a mathematical enterprise. Very much a mathematical enterprise. And during the war, um, or right after the war, he and Claude Shannon came up with a theory of information. And so there is a relationship between information theory and cybernetics. Shannon's work was much different. He was working on cryptography during the war. And uh, for him, uh, there, there is a little history to this in information theory uh, that goes back to the 1920s. For him, it was a question of Uh, This kind of arcane subject about how to write the best code, the most efficient codes to send information along a line. And he came up with what is still, most people when they read it, a counterintuitive theory of information. If I was to talk to you and you could not predict the next word I was saying, I would give you more information. If you could predict every word I was saying there would be no information. (laughs) So his theory had to do with the uncertainty in information. So if I was talking just random words for him, that would be the most information. So why is this important for him? Okay, as a cryptologist uh, and also as a a telephone engineer, the the goal is to be able to write efficient code. So an example that Wiener gives, I think it shows us, Shannon's work is really hard to penetrate. Uh, uh, But let me give you an example from Wiener. And I think Shannon uses it, too. Mm -hmm. So what's an efficient code? Okay. In the 1940s, uh, the telegraph companies would send birthday telegrams. And these were standard telegrams. Hi, Mom, you know, happy birthday, you know, good luck, and so forth. They're very long. The data may be several bits long. And they only had a certain number of these. Say they had 16 of them. And if they have 16 choices, you only need four bits mm-hmm. to send that greeting. You only need, it could be books. It could be four books. You would only need four books, four bits, pardon me, to send one of those books. Mm-hmm. So that was a very important for cryptography. So both Shannon and Wiener came up with this about the same time, a very technical But also, uh, as we'll see later, it became extraordinarily influential throughout art and music and humanities and social sciences. And they both came up with the same theory. Shannon's work is a lot more involved, and people are still actually doing a lot of research on it in regard to codes like like the MP3 format, for example, is based on the information theory code. Mm -hmm. And Wiener's work became more of a philosophy of nature, although it still is used uh, definitely in other fields.
1: Mm -hmm. And how would you characterize the sort of emergence and receptions of both Wiener and Shannon's different theories at the time? Because as you document really nicely in the book, Cybernetics, the book that announces uh, Wiener's theory, became a huge runaway hit, at least for kind of a a book that was largely on statistical mechanics. Whereas um, I believe Shannon published his initial articles on his information theory in the Bell Labs technical journal. So what was the reception like between these two different works?
0: So the book so the book publishers for Cybernetics are really amazed about the popularity of this book because the mathematics in that book is graduate-level mathematics, and it still is graduate-level mathematics. The intro and the work is very good. Uh, it was as popular as uh, Kenzie's work on, on, on sexuality in the American male. It was as popular as a couple of other books uh, at the time, and apparently... I think the reason it was popular is because it was the first book to explain these new electronic digital computers. And it was a theory of comparing those electronic computers to electronic brains. And that's what they were known of in the press. Mm-hmm. And so it became it, – I, I kind of compare it to Steve, uh, Stephen Hawking's book, A uh, Brief History of Time. I don't know if everyone understands the, <laughs> the mathematics in that book, but it's a very popular book. But this book had that kind of success. And mm-hmm. the newspaper coverage, I mean, it ran from – small-town newspapers, AP press stories, uh, you know, New York Times. And and the main issue there was usually a threat of technological unemployment and also what it meant, quite frankly, humanism, to think of a human as a machine. And there are titles like The Machine in Our Image, for example. It's just remarkable press coverage. And Shannon is a very technical paper, as you said, in the Bell Systems Technical Journey. All kinds of theorems, all kinds of proofs, uh, And uh, it it gets popularized later, but uh, much later. Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. And so in addition to, you know, Wiener's, as as you sort of characterize it, his kind of philosophy of nature was what drew a lot of people into it. But also at the same time, he sort of enrolled a much broader group of participants than the kind of narrowly construed, um, you know, research group at Bell Labs. So could you kind of take us through some of these, you know, leading lights at uh, what, becomes like the first Macy Foundation conference on cybernetics.
0: Sure. Part of this is, like you said, Wiener himself. I mean, his father's philologist at Harvard. He himself speaks several languages. He, he reads widely. His PhD is really in philosophies and philosophy and mathematics. So he himself has this wide interest in social sciences and philosophy. So so Wiener, uh, Gregory Bateson, anthropologist Margaret Mead, uh, more, much more famous than her husband, Gregory Bateson. Uh, Warren McCulloch, neuroscience. So we have neuroscientists. We have engineers like John von Mathematicians, famous ones like John von Neumann, who's inventing uh, what's becoming the von Neumann computer architecture. We have Claude Shannon. Shannon is at the Macy conferences. Neuroscientists, anthropologists, social scientists, linguists. And those debates are really remarkable. They're still remarkable to read debates. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're debating a lot of huge issues, and they're not technical issues in the sense of, uh, you know, what's the best way to code uh, and and do a calculation on channel capacity, like in Shannon's work. Shannon is there. Now, let me talk a little bit about Shannon's debate, because it'll show you as well that information theory was seen in this broad sense, too, as as a a theory that can solve a lot of problems in the physical world. So the, the allure of cybernetics is really that it can model Humans and machines, and intelligent machines—that that that same analogy of an intelligent machine that's receiving inputs, data from the environment, processing that information and data, and then operating on its environment—is the way you would describe a human. And it's a different—it's a materialism. This is a question of philosophy about materialism, right? So there's interest in that. The social scientists, like Bateson and Mead are really excited about, especially Bateson. Um, in fact, uh, Margaret Mead says that she went to an earlier cybernetics meeting that it was so exciting that she had broke a tooth during the competition <laughs> and realized until it was over. Yeah. <laughs> That's how exciting it was, that this would bring mathematical rigor to the social sciences, which they thought was missing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the neuro- neuroscientists were a little skeptical, I think, about this analogy between the brain. And, you know, the human brain and the digital computer. Remember, these digital computers are the size of of, of downstairs in my house here.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, They're a little skeptical. There's a great debate in there about analog and digital. What's analog? What's digital? That still resonates today. It actually relates to my my most recent work. Mm -hmm. work. And then the, um, like, yeah, the philosophers were definitely interested in the materialist part of that. And these debates are remarkable they're, they're wide- ranging, they're rambling, but they also shows you uh, kind of the goal at the time, and this is from the Macy Foundation was to bring they were concerned about specialization in the sciences, so mm-hmm. these were a way to break that down. But this was the most wide- ranging of those conferences. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that in the book, you compare it in a way to uh, the American unity of science movement. And it
0: seems oh, sort yeah. of like,
1: yeah, big, not, not a direct participant in that, but some of the same actors are kind of shared between sure. those.
0: Sure. And, uh, and actually it's a point of which I'll, you know, hope, hope, I think this book has been opening up some research, which is great. Um, there is a strong linkage with the unity of science movement later, but even at the time they're, they're talking like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're saying, look, the, the uh, The sciences have been too specialized, and they've been too separate. We need something that ties these together. They saw, as you say, they saw cybernetics as a way to do that. So that had a lot of appeal, no matter whether you were a philosopher or not, Mm -hmm. scientist. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And so I want to go back to something that you were saying uh, a little bit earlier about the way in which cybernetics kind of framed this public discourse on electronic brains. There's a great mm-hmm. uh there's a great video that was produced um I believe it was by CBS that largely is just an interview between a television producer and uh Jerome Wiesner from uh, MIT uh called Machines Who Think. I believe, (laughs) and in in that way, um, we see Wiesner sort of framing some of the work on Whirlwind, uh, you know, an early uh, digital computer, alongside uh, research in the social and behavioral sciences, and work on kind of in a more cybernetic tack. And you kind of see, yeah, the two do come together quite a bit. But one, I'm wondering, what did. Norbert Wiener feel about all this, because Wiener isn't really involved in the same kinds of problems as the computer scientists are. And then two, what did the computer people think about the <laughs> kind of sensationalization of yeah. their work on electronic brains as this, in this cybernetic idiom?
0: So this is an issue I actually had a little difficulty with with a couple of reviewers. Uh, <laughs> so, and they, and because I would say, because is complaining about science fiction, people in science fiction his work being compared to science fiction. Mm. And so the, some computer scientists hated the fact that computers were called brains. A lot of ne- Most of the neurophysiology, neurophysiologists thought the same way. They did not like that comparison at all. So what we kind of today take for granted as a science fiction kind of aspects of that were, um, were, were criticized. What Wiener really disliked was the application of cybernetics to the social sciences, which is iron. Yeah, his book, Human Use of Human Beings, is all about that. But what he means, he's kind of a, Wiener's an interesting guy. Uh,
2: <laughs>
0: he would spend a, one letter uh, to a high school student and say, look, a long letter saying, look, uh, you shouldn't be writing to a busy uh, scientist and personal figure like I am. I'm, I'm not. I'm too busy to answer, I mean, then he answers the letter. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he's an interesting guy. <laughs> But anyway, Wiener says very clearly, and they have a whole meeting about this, that cybernetics should not be applied to social scientists, because if you interpret it narrowly as the mathematics that he was using for prediction, social scientists do not have that kind of data. And so everybody just ignores that (laughs) injunction, and actually, they, they convince. I mean... Uh, they convince Weiner that what they're doing is, is right. In fact, Weiner becomes a very uh, big fan of Gregory Bateson, actually, which is kind of odd, mm. which is because Bateson's not mathematical at all. But anyway, um, so there was a lot of contention as well as what cybernetics is. Who should speak for cybernetics, and, and so forth, both publicly and uh, also within these professional societies. And Weiner himself gets upset with various people in the field, uh, like McCulloch. Uh, at MIT, who he thinks is taking over cybernetics. Right.
1: Yeah. And, there's, and there's also a shift kind of going on at the time. And you can, I think your framing in the book is more that this is a, a product of these discussions. But so initially, Wiener frames cybernetics as, you know, the science of feedback and control. And that was yeah. kind of the, you know, wartime metaphor of how to, you know, predict the movement of an enemy uh, aircraft. But the discourse very quickly starts to shift away from feedback which seems kind of very narrowly construed and analog, but also in a way kind of begets these really interesting like psychiatric and physiological right. metaphors and like homeostatic. So when it turns away from feedback, what is, what is the cybernetic discourse becoming slowly?
0: Yeah, so this is, an int- this is an interesting question because it took me a long time to realize how important the idea of circular causality is or was to those people in the Macy Conference, especially uh-huh. to the social scientists. That this was a revolutionary idea that they that te, te, teleology is, is not uh, is a subject that should be considered. In other words, the fact that the goal of a machine and the way that operates is key. Mm-hmm. When they shift over to information theory, in fact, there, there was a lot of complaint within the Macy Conference when that happened. But it be, but it's because the information theory too was seen as a science that could explain everything. Like in fact, now physicists today think the world that a lot of some physicists today have theories that you know the, world, the universe is is a computational information machine, and, and you can explain a lot of the world with that. Mm-hmm. So, but what I what I've seen in my work in the cybernetics moment was the the extension of it that went by the name under the name of cybernetics usually had circular causality, which is information feedback loops. As, as as the key as the key element, the mathematics of that is hard, is very difficult. Mm-hmm. So the people are not really working out the mathematics of they're doing it in, uh, for example, under in Bateson's work under second order second right, mm-hmm.
1: right, right. And just to to frame some of the other stuff that's going on at the time, you brought up Warren McCulloch, who becomes Mm -hmm. kind of, he almost becomes Wiener's successor, right, in taking on the um, American uh, Cybernetics Society. But what was was his research really about? Because there's also another key interesting figure I want to get at, uh, Walter Pitts, who, uh, you know, Pitts and McCulloch kind of work out uh, their own neurophysiological substantiation of cybernetics, which is about uh, neural networks, research that has certainly continued into today. And this is actually, I think I was explaining at a party a year ago, um, something about, you know, early cybernetics to people who work, you know, in current machine learning and don't really have, didn't really have a sense of the history of it. But one guy actually went out and bought cybernetics and read it because I told him about the kind of influence on neural networks research. So could you like unpack what, uh, what McCulloch was doing and sure. the kind of also tense personal history between, you know, McCulloch, Pitts and Wiener that really kind of did... In a way, spell it had a lot of consequences in the way the field was organized.
0: Sure. So McCulloch and Pitts in 1943 write this famous paper where they take the symbolic logic to prove mathematically that the human brain, that a model of the human brain that operates on neurons is uh, a Turing machine, so a computer. Mm-hmm. So uh, that theory of neural nets is kind of, is part of cybernetics for a long period of time. So Pitts and McCulloch work on that. Some other people picked that up at, at Cornell, Ro- Rosenblatt. And that's that it becomes overshadowed by AI. And this is why the history is kind of, you know, as you say, it's probably not familiar to people working on AI. It's overshadowed by symbolic AI, um, Minsky and, and, and so forth. Then in the 80s, it gets renewed. And even today, at at, at, at uh, Brooks at uh, MIT, went back like like you like you, I, I know what, like you were saying when you gave this book to a friend, somebody went back and read Cybernetics, like read back went back and read Starman. like He goes, "Oh, this is this is a intelligent Earth thing object interacting with its environment." Mm-hmm. So it's extremely influential theory, but uh, it got me. It got, in AI, about 1950s or so, it got replaced by symbolic AI. And so it existed really kind of in uh, a fashion where it wasn't funded so well by the ARPA, Advanced Research Projects Agency, which also funded the Internet. It wasn't funded so much by that. But it was it was key, and it was key all along, and, and people kept picking that up, as, as you said. Pitts is a very interesting guy. He, he's a really, really interesting guy, Uh they tried to get Pitts. Pitts would not do the work to finish his PhD. Uh, von Neumann and Wiener and it, people mm-hmm. said, "Look, we'll just sign. You know, write something. We'll sign it. Right, basically is what they said." <laughs> but but it, ne- it never happened. He's a very he's a very key figure in all of it. He was a key figure in Wiener's early work. He was a key figure in McCulloch's work. McCulloch, for modern day sovereign mathematicians, is better known for the work on the frog's eye paper in nineteen fifty six, where they're doing this work and on perception and they see that the frog's eye is not modeling the world as the world you would think the world is, but is modeling certain motions in the world. And so this becomes part of second order cybernetics and a very radical kind of epistemology. So McCulloch is a key figure here in that in that regard, very much so. And Paul Pitts is with him all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It has a tragic ending to and he dies of alcoholism. later wrong. He has a tragic ending in
1: his life. And tragic beginnings too, because he was yeah. functionally homeless, right, and then basically showed up in Rudolf Carnap's office, <laughs> <laughs> calling him out on something.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's very. Sh- it's a very strange character, and uh, right, very much so.
1: Yeah, and so. Just broadening out um, the picture of cybernetics to you know other figures, one of the interesting tensions that you trace in the book, something that uh, you corrected me on earlier, was uh, the way in which the international community um, kind of took up cybernetics. So there were the British cyberneticians, um, Gray Walter and Ross Ashby. Um, and then there was also, um, there were also others who were working on information theory and people like the ratio club. So yeah. what is this, what is this international picture of cybernetics that begins to emerge and where are the boundaries being drawn?
0: Yeah, yeah that's a, that's a really good question. My book is mostly on the U S but what I did was I followed an old uh, line uh, by Bruno Latour is to follow your actors. So when my actors would go to Britain and so forth, I would follow them and so forth. And when the British would come to – whoever would come to the U.S., I would follow them. That's a really good question. The interaction between U.S. and Britain on that is very heavy. The reaction with the Soviet Union is much different, right? So, okay, so for the Soviet Union, there there are two versions of information theory. This is debated at the Macy conferences. The people who want to make information theory more into a, a, a general theory of the way all systems work were closer to the British style. Donald Mackay there had a theory of information that actually did that, uh, that would talk about all information, would give a semantic meaning to it. There are still researchers today trying to make Shannon's theory into a semantic theory of information. So there was that close. There was a lot of boundary work being done the, uh, between the two schools of information. And boundary work is a sociologist term to mean people are, are defining their fields against some, someone else's field. You're either in the field or out of the field. Mm-hmm. So there was that work as well. Now, I have a colleagues who are working on cybernetics in, in Britain and, I mean, in uh, Germany and France. We know a lot more about cybernetics in the Soviet Union and in and, and ch- Chile.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: So, with the Soviet Union, I talked a little bit about, because it was very important in my story. So, the Soviet Union cybernetics is first, it's a uh, seen as a, uh, a sort of a Anti-anti-communist uh, uh, field. I, I forget the exact term, and but then it's taken up as the uh, basically state philosophy in the Soviet Union. And so, so there are cybernetics institutes, there are cybernetic organizations, planning. Uh, there are cybernetics. Uh, the, the whole computer effort is, is brought under the name of cybernetics. So cybernetics is kind of an umbrella for how to bring all the sciences together. So getting back to your unity of science movement. Mm -hmm. And so the CIA is getting very concerned about that. One particular person in the CIA, John Ford, is getting very concerned about this because he sees cybernetics declining. It's losing its status, universal status. In the U.S. it's a universal science. And and with the death of Wiener in 1964, and and with the fight between Wiener and and McCulloch that occurred before that, and with... uh, Loss of funding. He sees, and also with cyberneticians kind of being uh, a lot of people in the counterculture take up cybernetics, and uh, a lot of scientists don't like that because they think it's they're giving a flaky image. Uh, you know, there's books like "The Cybernetics of the Sacred." Right. <laughs> yeah. So the CIA this one particular agent. Uh, Secretly, but actually not so secretly, since I could find declassified documents that talk about this and actually published documents to talk about it, mm. was a founder of the. Uh, this was an organizer. This, this CIA person who worked in the Science and Technology Division mm. of the CIA organized the American Society of Cybernetics. <laughs> and McCulloch knows that he was a Cold Warrior, and other people knew that. And the basic purpose was to to fight the cybernetics gap. And so there was seen as a missile it was seen as similar to a missile gap with the Soviet Union, and we, you know a lot of people didn't believe that. Uh, Jerry Wiesner at MIT who, uh, who was a science advisor for President Kennedy did not believe that. And um, so this is a different international relationship with cybernetics. So here's cybernetics in the, in the Soviet Union is seen as a threat by some. And uh, the American Society of Cybernetics is established to fight that. So it's interesting. That's a different kind of, it's not a cooperative one. It's a very antagonistic kind of relationship. It's one of the biggest surprises I found in the book. actually.
1: Yeah. I love that. That phrase, the cybernetics gap. It's, you know, <laughs> it does a lot of work too, because you see sort of in the, I guess, you know, from the 1960s on after Wiener sort of received from the picture, Wiener, who was you know very anti-war despite, you know, working on problems of anti-aircraft, uh, weaponry, uh, he, he, he would sort of have none of this military funding. Yet you see kind of an ex- not an explosion, but a huge growth of funding from DARPA for these cybernetic-like projects and things like uh, Heinz von Forrester's Biological Computing Laboratory at the University of Illinois. So you see this huge kind of, like, not huge, but distinct explosion of these cybernetics research like, centers.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So like bionics, there's a whole new field called bionics, which I thought... Uh, before I started doing this research was just a merger biology and electronics. no, right. what it means is and this is about as cybernetic as you can get to look at living systems how they 've evolved to become very robust I mean we have brains that are really reliable and they're composed of unreliable components right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh we are very pretty robust creatures actually, and here are these complex cold war electronic systems that you know that flew aircraft that were beginning to fly uh, m- missiles and also and so, so forth, were unreliable. So they looked to these living systems that had evolved to be very reliable in order to see how to design these electronic systems. So it's called Bionic. It's about as Cold War science as you can. <laughs> it's about as far away from what von Forster later gets into that you can get, uh, about as far away as from the counterculture wants to get. Uh, that, comes, that comes out of all that,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that sort of also, that, that leads pretty nicely into uh, the two, probably like my favorite chapters in the book um, on humans as machines and then uh-huh. machines as humans. <laughs> so yeah. in humans as machines, you sort of document the way in which uh, cybernetics is taken up by the social sciences and uh-huh. then machines as humans, you sort of, I, and I believe that the material from that is drawn in part from that paper of yours you mentioned, Where Are the Cyborgs and Cybernetics? Right. Part of the reason I was excited about this book, actually. Oh, um, and <laughs> so so I want to start with the social science stuff, because right. uh, that's, that's super that's super fascinating. Um, so who are some of the main uh, kind of translators of cybernetics discourse? And you know, we, we have, obviously, Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead that we've seen, but this begins to permeate elsewhere.
0: Yeah. And here, what I tried to do, there was so much material, and again, I'm glad to see so much more work coming out of all of this. I focus on, like, six key figures. So I focused on George Miller in cognitive psychology and Roman Jakobson linguistics. Uh, His form of linguistics at the time is competing with Noam Chomsky's linguistics. And he's quite frankly better known than Chomsky for quite a while. Chomsky's linguistics. And there's Herbert Simon who won a Nobel Prize in economics for his theory of bounded rationality, which which draws on cybernetics. And there is uh, Karl Deutsch in uh, political science, uh, who, who is a colleague of Wieners, who, 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 draws on that as, who draws on that as well. And Talcott Parsons, probably the famous, so, most famous sociologist. In fact, what I came, what the conclusion I came to: any major intellectual figure in the U.S., probably in France and Germany and, and Soviet Union as well, in the fifties and sixties, had to come to grips with cybernetics and information theory. Mm-hmm. They felt compelled to, whether they adopted it or not. The folks I studied adopted it quite a bit. So, for example, on the on the humans, as they were modeling humans as machines, meaning using principles from cybernetics and information theory. One of the weirdest is uh, this information calculus to take information theory, which is a theory of communication, as a way to use that calculus, for example, to talk about phonemes in Ru- the Russian language. Just another Cold War project. hmm to study the structure of language. It doesn't have to do, it's, really, it's very interesting, nothing would do with communication. Uh, Miller, uh, George Miller, is a very, very famous cognitive psychologist. Also, Yurik Neisser, whom I actually knew because he's a professor at Cornell, uh worked on, the, on that as well, too, in cognitive psychology, to see how far they could get with this metaphor of the, of the brain as a computer. And they got quite far with it, and then someone like Neisser in his second book, just says, "No, it's, it's too simplistic." <laughs> the The modeling in uh, the modeling in, in uh, management theory in uh, sociology is really remarkable because it goes from the scale of an individual to like Deutsch is modeling the whole political system, how the whole political system as an organism. Mm-hmm. That's the key thing. Right? You think of all these units, whether they're alive or well, or, or pardon me, alive, animate or inanimate or combination, of it, or an organism. Mm-hmm. If they're an organism, you can study them in this. And this is the excitement. This is really part of that excitement. Mm-hmm. And so Deutsch, he became, I mean, he moved from MIT to Yale to Harvard. He became a very famous political scientist. And here are these, there are these diagrams of the information flows and decision makings and so forth. So it, it is incredible. And quite frankly, in, those, in that chapter, in those six figures, it is really just the major figures. They're, you know, they're, they're, If you look at the citations for cybernetics and information theory among the social sciences in the 50s and 60s, so it's just remarkable. And you can name famous French figures too, like Derrida in the 70s, who draw on cybernetics. And
1: uh, there's good work on that, too. Um. And just to sort of, uh, I'm what I'm interested in here is what particularly, um, aside from sort of being this kind of obligatory reference as you frame it, cybernetics is offering these new social sciences, because oh, sure. there are, you know, there, one could point to... Other kinds of competing sure. analogies, or you know, world events, or kind of you know spurs in you know cultural thinking. For example, maybe even if you're looking in political science, the influence of like Frankfurt School revival of Marxism. Yep. So there, there are certain things one could see. Um, that wouldn't be quite, you know, systems thinking the same way, but would suggest some kind of, you know, large systemic dependence like that. So what do you think specifically was it about cybernetics that it offered these new social science discourses? Was it really about the kind of modes of explanation? Was it a, an institutional thing? Was it like a kind of obligation to acknowledge this work that Wiener had clearly already cast in a kind of social science tack? Or?
0: Yeah. No, 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 it's a really good Well, first of all, I think they felt compelled to come to grips with it. And a lot of people just uh, didn't use it at all, right? Yeah. Um, Not at all. But they felt compelled to come to grips with it. They had to come to grips with it. The people I studied and what they said about it uh, in both private and and public, meaning published and and non-published work, were really enthused about a new form of behavioralism, not the old behavioralism from the 1920s, but a new form of behavioralism that they could have a model for that, and the model drew on the physical sciences. It's hard to, rem- to remember that at the time, right after World War II, physics had a high reputation and also a negative reputation because of the atomic bomb, but, but, but that it had made so much more progress. You see a lot of statements like, Oh, physics is right of the social sciences.
1: Right, physics envy.
0: Yeah, exactly, precisely. And so it's not necessarily qual- always quantification. That's the goal but You can have what I've learned during this research. People can feel like they were doing quantification without mathematics.
2: Mm-hmm, mm, so that's, uh, this, yeah.
0: that's what the cybernetics is providing. It provides a ready-built structure. How can, do I explain organisms? Well, they receive information from their environment, they process that information, they act on their, there's a structure, and that is a, <laughs> Structure that was planned. Now, so it's a basis for structuralism, right? And it's right. That's where it is. Quite right. This is—I probably didn't state it that clearly in the book. And I appreciate the question, but uh, it's part of a structuralist movement, like Claude Lévi-Strauss. Strauss, sorry, it's part of the structuralist movement, and it gets debunked with post-structuralism in, in the seventies. Uh, and Talcott Parsons started this before cybernetics. And what he found in cybernetics was aha. For him, it was a way to kind of confirm that he was right. It did some technical thing for him, too, and I won't get into it. It's, it's just as, what I found is social sciences are just as technical as physics, right? <laughs> right.
1: Yeah,
0: it, it found a way for him to tie together his three layers of society. Mm-hmm. So I think that was, it. for them, uh, the people I studied, that was the main point. And also, it was a, a young person's movement, too, by the way. <laughs> I think I'm right on that. I, I would have to double-check that. Uh-huh. Like, even though the winners is old, uh, the is a social scientists are you
1: know? Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost, yeah, it, it provides them a, with a way to construct these black boxes that have, you know, kind of legitimacy in a way. <laughs> and yeah. speaking of constructing, uh, so getting on to the next chapter in which you talk yeah. about um, machines as human uh, and sort of uh, take up bionics and also uh, cyborg science. Mm-hmm. Um, so you... So you basically make the like, fairly strong claim that um, it wasn't so much that people were, that a major arm of cybernetic research was the building of cyborgs. There wasn't this proliferation of cyborgs. They had a lot of visibility. Like, yeah. for instance, Claude Shannon became largely known for Theseus, the um, maze-solving mouse that he was able to build based on his system. But so it's not like there's a huge proliferation of cyborgs themselves it's really that cyborgs kind of form, they're, they're, they're a rhetorical technology to describe this largely theoretical movement, if I'm, if I'm reading this yeah. correctly. Yeah. And that you also point uh, to uh, kind of different uh, research programs, bionics being one of them, and also kind of man uh, spacecraft research mm-hmm. on kind of, the, as you, I think you characterize in the book is like way ahead of what the uh, science fiction authors were thinking at the time. So I'd love if you could go into some of that material for
0: us. All right, thank you. Uh, when I wrote that paper, I wrote it because uh, I was myself surprised that cyborgs were a very small part of cybernetics. They're important in, in these various fields, like cybernetics and, and bionics and, and so forth. I was also surprised that NASA, well, I should not be surprised at this. NASA didn't take it seriously. So this project, where the word is coined, was what you're referring to by these researchers, whose names happen, Klein's and Klein, <laughs> Manfred Klein's and Nathan Klein, uh, to, and the cyborg is a uh, cybernetic organism, which is a little uh, redundant, but that's okay. All organisms are cybernetic, cyberneticians, they say. But anyway, cyborg <laughs> organisms. So their example is a mouse, right? And there's a, uh, a uh, pump uh, that is pumping... Um, chemicals uh, or, or into the mu- to the mouse and there's a feedback mechanism, but their proposal was to, and there's a serious proposal, like 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 you're referring to, is of having humans explore space without spacesuits, and how they could do that is if they had artificial hearts, if they had a, radi- a belt of chemicals that would automatically pump chemicals into their body, like anti-radiation drugs and so forth and so on, and that Illustration that you're referring to or alluding to in Life Magazine in 1960, is, as you said, is and I know this from a good dissertation on cyborgs, is far far and above uh, what, what's available in science fiction at the time. But this, it's interesting. This word cyborg. Uh, there's fears of the There there are fears of the cyborg. In fact, Arthur Clarke, uh, the science fiction writer. Has a, a couple of paragraphs in one of his books, so we should not be afraid of the cyborg. People are. There's a concern about. There's a concern about the, all this kind of engineering, and there's concern about that, that. That Life Magazine drawing. People are writing in and saying, "This is awful to uh, you know model you know humans that way to to create these creatures that are not human." Anymore. And so, whatever. Writing it, what I was trying to do was to set aside, as far as I could, this is always a challenge of history, to set aside, as far as I could, the interpretation of Cyborg after, say, 1970, where it becomes, because of Donna Haraway's just remarkable work, which which I love, it becomes this figure, this ironic political myth, and it becomes this figure in Cyborg Anthropology. and everything. So I tried to set that apart and look at where were the cyborgs and cyborgs. And there weren't very many. That's why I wrote that article. I got this really wonderful uh, uh, letter, email, from a, a scholar at the uh, University of uh, Maryland, um, Katie King, who was, get this, was, did her undergraduate work on under a Bateson and her Ph.D. in their <laughs> and she said, "Thank you for separating cybernetics from cyborgs <laughs> in, that, in that paper." In that paper, so to me, it was the most interesting kind, it Was the most interesting work,
2: yeah, yes. um,
0: So there's also there's bionics, but there's also AI. And uh, this Weiner tried to come to grips what what it meant to do that fusion, where he does mention cyborgs in God and Golem, his last book. God and and he did try to come to grips with that. He himself proposed what's very common today, like like automatic, uh, like having insulin insulin automatically uh, injected into your body. You know, your body gets slow, and you have insulin injected, which is basically what being a cyborg in that way was. So, yep, it was. uh, I was I was surprised to see that uh, there was so little work on it. There was so little. It was so, such a small part of cybernetics in the U.S.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, so after that, you kind of take us into uh, second order cybernetics, which is also kind of like second wave cybernetics in a way. Yeah. But so, could you unpack the second <laughs> order uh, from the kind of yeah from the just it being the succession of the old guard?
0: Yeah. So here's where I disagree with with, Kath, with Catherine Hale. I love that book. Uh, How we became posthuman is it really helped me think through. Uh, What these folks were considering, but I disagree with her that one replaced the other.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: My argument is that first order cybernetics continues, but it continues in a very in 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 a uh, uh, sense very kind of closed uh, technocratic politically sense of uh, closed systems. And it still does today. You can find journals about this kind of cybernetic system. In fact, um, Sir Brand's wonderful booklet, A Two Cybernetic Frontiers, is about that. And also there's an interview that he does later in life with 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 Bateson and Mead, which I end the book with. Mm -hmm. And Bateson himself alludes to that, that there's a cybernetics of the engineers, which considers a closed system. And you study the system. And this is the best way to do it. Then there's the cybernetics of that, where you, the observer, are part of the system. That's second order of cybernetics. Mm-hmm. But, but my point is that both of those continue in that, in that diagram. For first order cybernetics, some people are still looking at it like that, even to today. And the second order of cybernetics, they try to put the observer in.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: This is still going on. I, I've gotten uh, invitations to speak at conferences where they're using second order cybernetics. They want to reform science using second order cybernetics. In fact, they're calling it uh, second order science. And also, mm-hmm. where they want to reform the human sciences with, with cybernetics.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, and that started with the, as as Kathleen Hale has a wonderful chapter on second order cybernetics. Starts with that paper, that 1956 paper by McCulloch. On his you know the frogs
1: on. Yeah, and also on author on that paper, and sort of one of the what becomes one of the figures in the second order cybernetics movement is uh, Umberto Maturana, and along with Francisco Varela, they kind of lead. I, I wouldn't say they lead the guard, but their work on autopoiesis or kind of self-replicating systems that kind of you know, for me at least, encapsulates like what the big theoretical shift in second order cybernetics is. So, yeah. who, who are some of the other actors who are working uh, on these kinds of theories?
0: So, the, they're the, to me that book is the, like you said is is the main one. Mm-hmm. Um, it re- it really is. Von Forrester's work to me is a little difficult to understand. <laughs> mm-hmm. To me, uh, the auto police is is, is much clearer. Is, is much clearer to understand. Anyway, but they're all they're all working on together, and they look at Basin's work as that too. Now Basin, so so under second order cybernetics, you'll find von uh, Forrester's work, you will find Basin's work, and you will find yeah, Alpha Police's work. To me, which is the most well worked out system hmm. under Basin, and here's where. Uh, and, uh Fred Turner's book is, is quite good. I, I think I might disagree a little bit with, with, with Fred that it's a mystic form of cyber. I don't think it's mysticism. So Bateson is arguing this in his book that was a big hit with the counterculture in the 1970s, that steps to an ecology of mind, that the ecology exists in this, that there are these pathways between humans and their environment Maybe a computer is part of that pathway and nature back on itself. And if you start thinking like that, this is a way to change mind and nature of one, and it's a way to solve the ecological crisis of the 70s. He calls it imminent mind, not transcendent mind. But this is a mind that existed through this pathway. Now, that's called second order cybernetics. And it's much different than Alva the police, right? So Alva the is, is an organism like us uh, that is self-generating, self-creating. And also your perception is a radical form of epistemology because the perception is the way you create the world mm-hmm. as you view the world. That is radical. That is radical. Bateson is radical too, but to mm-hmm. me it's radical in a much different way. But they were great friends, all three of those people. You know, uh, Bateson, von Forrester, uh, and Varela, uh, B- and uh, they supported each other at conferences and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, and people are still doing this work, which which is kind of a nice surprise to me. I'm finding out after I finished the book, I heard from all kinds of people working on all this.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. And that, that people are still doing this kind of work answers almost one one of my last questions about the kind of legacy of cybernetics before getting into any of that uh, in like sort of like toward the end of the book in chapter 8 you kind of you take to task the uh, subtitle of your book uh, yeah, or why we call our age the information age, right. and you sort of look at the genealogy of information ages and show how this has uh, changed over time. So, what is the relationship between this cybernetics discourse and what we w- what we might call like the pioneers of you know cyber utopianism and the inf- uh, the information age, or the you know sort of looking at things like uh, Stuart Brand's Whole Earth Catalog as a proto internet? Where where do these two meet up?
0: Okay, so when I first started this work. In fact, it's in an NSF proposal, the <laughs> NSF grant proposal. When I first started this work, I was going to relate information theory and discourse about an information aid. Mm-hmm. What I discovered is there's not much connection <laughs> between <laughs> the information theory and the information aid. In that discourse. There is. There there is some there is there is some. And I try to trace I try to trace that So the actual discourse and the actual people who take up the, the actual phrase information. Age, information revolution, and so forth—they they kind of gesture to Shannon much more, usually much more so than we, are and so forth. But what I tried to argue in the, in the book was this: that this really rich discourse uh, in, that we've been talking about in cybernetics and also in information theory, too, and, and also, quite frankly, Shannon uh, condoned, or uh, he also did work in the social sciences. In, this, in the social sciences. This really rich discourse about cybernetics as circular causality as a way to explain all living organisms, as information theory you know, to explain what has been uh, transmitted, stored, and so forth, but not as data as a mathematical theory about uncertainty.
2: Mm-hmm. In fact,
0: really, and, and also, as Wiener famously says in Human Use to Human Means*: information is not a good commodity because it will... <laughs> You know, entropy sets in. It will lose its value. (laughs) That goes against the whole information age, right there.
1: (laughs) Norbert Wiener as prophet of the dot com bust.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That that really rich discourse, I argue, gets flattened into this other discourse that's developing alongside of it and expands right when the cybernetics moment ends. And I think, and uh, maybe I think an article may be able to draw this out better. I think that that, inf- that that information discourse was an, it was a space for it to expand because of the cybernetics discourse had, had become was becoming narrower, right, mm. smaller. Mm. So there
2: there's
0: there's a direct relationship that's kind of weak, and then there is this uh, uh, coincidence where the cybernetics discourse is is getting smaller and the information discourse is going larger, mm-hmm. and people start talking about data rather than uncertainty.
1: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Huh. And so on the note of uh, you know, explaining things uh, more deeply in articles, uh, I was wondering, since our time is kind of coming to a close, mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about what you're working on uh, sure. currently.
0: Sure. Well, believe it or not, it's a book on digitalization. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and my friends say it's too big a topic. <laughs> so what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with a couple points in this book, uh, this debate on, on analog digital, and i'm going to start uh, with with some digital infrastructure, but what I've realized is this: okay, let me talk about the analog digital one very quickly, mm-hmm. so I'm writing a paper on it it'll be hopefully it'll be out uh, soon. there's a debate at the Macy conference whether the brain is analog or digital, and the physiologists say, no, no, the brain as you define analog, the brain is I'm, as much analog as it is digital digital meaning. The neurons themselves are either on or off, and they're on or off because of inputs they get, kind of like that you do. Analog meaning chemical processes that are continuous. So, this is a mathematician's debate between processes that are continuous, like, for example, or processes that are discrete, like a wall switch. wall switch is on or off, discrete, but if you have, uh, what do you call it, uh, a timer where you uh, where you can vary the intensity of a light, mm-hmm. that's a continuous thing. Why is this important? Well, it's important to them because of modeling. It, it, it challenges that famous paper, 1943 paper by McCulloch and Pitts, if the brain's analog. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just blows that paper out of the water.
2: <laughs>
0: so this is an important, it's an important debate. It's important for neurophysiologists to understand it right. So they're having this debate. Bateson, whom I love, I love Bateson's work. He keeps asking, he keeps saying, what do you mean by analog? What do you mean by digital? And he goes, my understanding of analog is, it's a, something that stands in for something else. Like a model plane, <laughs> right?
2: Right. <laughs>
0: like a model plane is an analog, right? And we know, and one of say, yes, of course. Model plane is analog. He says, but a model plane can be either continuous or discontinuous. In other words, analogs can be analog or digital. <laughs> so, so the word doesn't make any sense. And said, so we've got to tidy up our vocabulary. And I love this debate because it goes on. It's like a 50-page debate. It goes on. And Licklider, uh, who, who has the project or, or starts the project to fund the Internet or you know, to build the Internet, Says, he's a psychologist, he's there, and he says, if these words are bad, this is 1950, if these words are bad words, we should get rid of these words. Right? Mm-hmm. And if analog is a bad word, which people have shown that it is, we should get rid of it. And this other guy, Savage, is a mathematician, says, we can't. We, we, we've done well with these words, analog and digital, and we can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the client says, okay, we'll use these words as best we can. <laughs> So I love this debate, and I love it because, with scientists and engineers, you know they were grappling with all of this. They realized the words we had chosen were wrong. But today, those words—right, what is modern? Digital is the future. Analog is the past. And so that what I'm going to try to do in this paper, what I've tried to do in this paper, is to relate that debate to changes in these two words: analog and digital. Now. Those words don't mean. They mean something like digital means something like electronic, analog means something like non-electronic, or digital means online, analog means offline. And those words have changed so much, and the uses of those words mean. I mean, they do really important work in the present moment. Right. So I right. think understanding the history of that and tying that together will work out. We'll see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's where I'm going to start this project. We'll see what happens. Excellent.
1: Yeah, that yeah. sounds fascinating. Well. Okay. Ron, thank you so much for your time. Um, and I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And uh, to our listeners, thanks so much for listening in. This has been New Books in Science, Technology, and Society.